we'll be reading from that. If you didn't bring a Bible, don't have a Bible, you'll be able to reach in front of you and find a black Bible on the chair beneath you. Uh, and uh, that uh, you can turn to page 957 in those black Bibles for 1 Corinthians 10. And before we read, let's pray. Holy Father, thank you for your word. We pray this morning that uh, as we turn our attention to a new sermon series, that you would open our hearts to your holy word, and that you would teach us, that you would mold our hearts, that you would make us to be more like Christ. I pray this morning that you would be with Pastor Adam, fill him with your Holy Spirit, and give him uh, power uh, in his sermon, uh, help him to, sp- to speak boldly and truthfully your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 14. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, so you want to spend a year or so in the book of Exodus? That sound like fun? All right. Let's do it. Exodus chapter 1. You know, the book of Exodus is one of the most important books of the Bible because it describes the It is the story of God saving uh, people from slavery and Egypt. And that story ended up becoming the origin of the Jewish people. They're given the law, they're given the land. And uh, God designed that whole period of history uh, as the model of salvation. So much of what we learn about salvation later in the Bible refers back to what we're learning from the book of Exodus. God saves people by sending a mediator and by working great miracles. And these themes are going to keep coming up all through the Bible, through history, throughout eternity. A couple of things that we're going to see as we go along. We learn a lot about God and we learn a lot about redemption. Those two things. We learn a lot about God from the book of Exodus, his attributes. That's theology, the knowledge of God. We learn a lot of theology Uh, knowledge of God in the story of the Exodus, and we also learn a lot about redemption. Now, every epic story has a hero, and the the hero of this particular story is 
God. That's right. The hero of this story is God. Now, God has his man, Moses, and Moses is going to do a lot of really cool things. But the hero of the Exodus is God himself. And so we learn a lot about God through the story of the Exodus. We learn about his glory. We learn about his sovereignty over the nations. We learn about his faithfulness to old promises. We learn about his holiness and his demand for obedience. We learn about his desire to dwell right in the middle of his people and so much more. So we're going to learn a lot about God. We're also going to learn a lot about the gospel. New Testament writers constantly looked back, and we saw that just a few minutes ago in the scripture that uh, Joe just read. Uh, New Testament writers constantly looking back to the Exodus in order to explain Christ. Exodus has all the foundational theology of salvation in Christ, which is why this series is called The Gospel According to Exodus. So we're going to learn a lot about God, and we're going to learn a lot about gospel, salvation, redemption as we go along. Uh, But those are all bullet points, right? Those are all bullet point doctrines that we would learn from this book. And sometimes we can ruin a great story by strip mining it for its ideas. Leland Riken says, Exodus is the greatest adventure story ever told. And I agree with that. I want to experience this story as we go along. God wrote things to teach us theology, and he wrote these things to teach us wisdom, theology, uh, wisdom, the knowledge of God. So how does God teach us? If he wants us to learn things about himself, and he wants us to learn about how to be saved, he wants us to learn about redemption. If he wants us to grow in wisdom, then how does God teach us? And assuming that since he is God and he made us, he probably knows exactly how to communicate to us really effectively. And he did not give us a textbook. God didn't give us a systematized list of doctrines. Instead, God is a master storyteller and he arranged events 3,500 years ago so that when you heard about what he did, You would get caught up in all these conflicts and the enemies and the adventures and reluctant heroes and betrayal and miracles and mistakes, and you would get caught up in that. And when that happens, wherever you are in the Bible, it might be a great story, it might be a poem, it might be a letter of personal correspondence. When that happens, when you get caught by Scripture, you know what happens is you accidentally learn theology. And you learn how to live. We grow in our knowledge of God. And in our wisdom, this right here is a record of human experience that has been given by God to us so that we can worship him. So here we go. Chapter one, verse one of the greatest story ever told. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now, that paragraph connects us to the paragraph before it, which is found in Genesis, right? So this is connected to Genesis. 
Now, Abraham was promised a lot of descendants. You remember that from Genesis chapter 17. God said, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings. And all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So that, that right there is a promise that God made to Abraham and later Isaac and later Jacob. The first paragraph of Exodus connects us to that, and it shows us that God is faithful to his promises. God promised that Abraham's descendants would be fruitful and multiply, and God would bless him with many descendants, and that's exactly what happened. Verse 7, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So that's the setup of the story here. God is powerful and God is faithful. God does what he says he's going to do. The Israelites did not multiply like a normal family tree. They increased greatly and they became exceedingly strong and the land was filled with them. So what are we learning so far? What theology pops off the page just in the very first paragraph? We learn that we can trust God because God is faithful to his promises. So you might go through the rest of scripture to see, well, what else has God promised to do? And that could be very interesting because God is faithful to his promises There's a certain rest that settles into the soul when we put our hope in God. So God is already fulfilling his ancient promise to Abraham, except there's a problem. There's a wrinkle that begins in verse 8. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. I remember the first time I read that verse. I was a kid, and I don't know how old I was or where I was, but I remember reading that verse for the first time when I was a kid. And I remember feeling, uh-oh, that's bad. <laughs> and it is. Verse 9. This new king, who didn't know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field and all their work. They ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So in this paragraph, we learn that God has enemies and therefore God's people have enemies. This new king, this Pharaoh doesn't care about God doesn't care about God's promises. The Pharaoh doesn't care about God's desire to be worshipped by free people in a promised land. And so this enemy of God calculates the risk of having these foreigners live inside the borders. And he starts with slavery. And in the next paragraph, he's going to move really quickly to a final solution of sorts. God's people have always had enemies. The major teaching on enemies in the Bible has to do with loving them and asking God to deliver us from them. 
couple of things to do when we face enemies. Matthew 5:44, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Proverbs 25, 21 says, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. Psalm 18:3 says, I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. The major teaching of the Bible in regard to enemies, and we are going to have them because we are God's people. When we have enemies, we are called to love them and we are called to depend on God to set us free and to vindicate us in regard to those enemies. So this is the beginning of Exodus. This is the setup of the story. We're watching God's faithfulness play out in real life situations. Real life involves enemies. Real life involves injustice and conflict. And this seems to be a threat to God's promises to Abraham. And you remember those promises? I, rem- I, uh, I read them just a little bit earlier. God's promising that there's gonna be lots of them and it's gonna be a nation and it'll be in a specific place and so on. And it looks like there's a threat to that. It looks like there's a threat. And the question here is, can God deal with a national scale problem? And in the next problem, in the next paragraph, the problem is going to get worse. Verse 15, then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Sifra and the other Pua. Now, let me just say here really quickly, Shifra and Pua are wonderful names, although we may not maybe use them for our own children anymore. I'm not sure what a nickname for Pua would be. But uh, (laughs) Shifra and Pua, it means beautiful one and splendorous one, uh, splendid one. So these are just great names that unfortunately have fallen out of use. Mm -hmm. Okay, so one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women, and see them on the birth stool. If it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. (laughs) So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. So the question here is, can God deal with the problem of Pharaoh? Can God deal with a nation-level conflict? And the midwives show up here to say, yeah, God can. God is all-powerful. He can do whatever he wants to do. Pharaoh wants a final solution to the Jewish problem, but the plan backfires. Now, why does the plan backfire? And this is important. Why does the plan backfire? The story is written to draw attention to God. The midwives act like they do because they feared God, verse 17. God is behind the story. Pharaoh tries to exterminate the Jews, but God will not allow that because he has made certain promises and he intends to do exactly what he said he was going to do. In fact, the opposite happens. So Pharaoh wants to exterminate them with this plan and the opposite happens, verse 20. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. So whatever Pharaoh is trying to do here has the opposite effect that Pharaoh wants because 
God is in control of this. Nation size problems are not too big for God. And this is an important reminder to all of us who sometimes freak out over what's happening on the evening news because of outrageous things that happen on the national level. Do not forget that God has asked his people to worship him in all kinds of circumstances. Psalm 46, 8, Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Now, what about this lie that the midwives told? And I got to tell you, I'm not totally sure how to handle that. Some people say, well, it's not exactly a lie. It's more of like an obfuscation or something. But look, deception is deception in my book. And the Bible says that God hates lying lips. So how do we explain that God blesses the women who lied? Verse 20, God dealt well with the midwives. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Now, we can't say, well, the ends justify the means because other parts of the Bible don't allow us to say that. Now, here's the best that I can do with this. Here's the best that I can say about this. Here you have a beautiful and splendid woman and a couple of beautiful, splendid women. uh, And they probably are in charge of a lot of other midwives because we're talking about lots of people and two midwives wouldn't have been able to handle all the different babies that that are being born here. So these are probably like the midwife leaders, okay? And what you have here is a couple of women with very beautiful souls, beautiful, wise eyes that could laugh at an evil man because they feared God. And I'm not sure that just anybody could have gotten away with this. Now, I'm not exactly preaching here. I'm just telling you kind of what I think. But I'm not sure that just any one of us could have gotten away with this. But every so often, you meet a lady who is so dignified, so principled, so beautiful, so strong, and so godly that no evil man can rule her. The issue of the Exodus is God getting glory. And it's interesting that we don't know the name of the Pharaoh. You ever thought about that? There's a lot of people names in the Bible. A lot of very ordinary people, including these two midwives. We know their names, but not Pharaoh. And perhaps this is intentional. I think it is. God does not share his glory. Here you have the Pharaoh, the most powerful man on earth at that time, and he is irrelevant next to these two ladies who knew Yahweh. So, enemies of God. Pharaoh is one of the biggest bad guys in the Bible, but a couple of ladies make his plan backfire. That's interesting. When Yahweh is standing behind things, that's the sort of thing that happens. Don't miss what happens behind the scenes here. What, What is Pharaoh's main aim? He wants to prevent the Israelites from going out to the land that God has promised. 
Moses is going to come in a couple of chapters in order to tell Pharaoh that the reason that they want to go out is so that they can worship God in the wilderness. Pharaoh wants to stop that. He wants to prevent the be fruitful and multiply that is not just Abrahamic, but it goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. He uses murder and he uses slavery to accomplish his goals. Now, who else, Bible character, does that sound like? Yeah, it sounds like Satan, doesn't it? This is a guy who's murdering people and opposed to God's plan. And that sounds an awful lot like Satan. John 8, 44, the devil was a murderer from the beginning. Galatians 4, 8, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to beings that by nature are not God's. See, Satan enslaves people. Satan kills people. The main goal of Satan is to prevent the worship of God and to prevent God's promises from coming true. So the book of Exodus has a lot of human characters in it, but the main character is God. The hero of this epic is God, and God is victorious over his enemies in the redemption of humanity, whatever enemy uh, that is. And therefore, God can be trusted God can be trusted with national problems and he can be trusted with family baby problems. From top to bottom, all through the earth, from eternity past to eternity future, God rules the world. And I think it's important to see babies in this story. I said this in the sermon about Mary last month, but there's a lot of babies in the Bible. Have you noticed that? It's almost like God cares about babies and families, right? It's a story about a home and a baby. Same with Abraham. It was about a baby, a promise of a baby. Adam and Eve, naked in the garden. Redemption has to do with intimate family stuff. And in the next chapter, what do we have? A baby. And we're told about how much his mommy loved him. And he grew up to be the one that pulled them out of Egypt. You know, God can deal with foul kings and he can deal deal with the stuff going on in your real life. Redemption, salvation, God's promises. God has the power to relate to all of it. But keep this in mind. Faith in God includes waiting for God to redeem all of life. So we can trust him to deal with national problems that all we can do is kind of yell at the television and gossip with our friends about it. And we can't really do much about it. And God can do something about that. And God can deal with the problems that happen in our bedrooms and in our garages and just the normal kitchen type stuff. God can deal with that. From top to bottom of humanity, he can deal with that. But faith in God doing something about it usually includes quite a lot of waiting. Have you found that? Look at the people with gray hair in this room and watch them nodding their head. Yeah, I've waited for God. (laughs) God made certain promises to Abraham But God's faithfulness to those promises was not immediate. You know, the length of time between Abraham and Moses was almost twice that of the age of America. This is a long time. But he is the model. Abraham is the model of New Testament faith. Romans 4, 3. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. David too, surrounded by trouble. He says in Psalm 27, I believe, every word of this is cool, every word of this, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, 
Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Now, the waiting is what kills us, though, isn't it? Waiting is when we might forget about the God who rules the world of nations and babies. Exodus and really the whole Bible. But these few paragraphs of Exodus are aimed at those moments when we are likely to forget about the God that we supposedly know. Do not forget that God sees, God hears, God cares, and God promises to redeem. And his timing is usually dissonant from our hearts. You know what that word dissonant means, right? Should I play a dissonant chord? Let me do that. Yeah, you know what a dissonant chord is, okay? (laughs) It's dissonant even just on one note. It's dissonant. You don't even need a match, but... That's dissonance. It's not harmony. And there's something about God's timing and God's will that is often usually dissonant from what is going on in our hearts. And our prayers fix it today, this morning, fully. (laughs) The waiting is what kills us. God's timing is usually dissonant. But here's the question. Can you say with Job, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Also, you know, remember that God is able to bless us with the things that seem only bad to us. And this is because God is glorious. This is because God does whatever he wants to do. You know, God's intention to rescue us, to rescue you, to redeem you is not ruined by evil. God's plan for redemption is not ruined by evil. Like Pharaoh's big backfire, and there's a lot of people that backfire in scripture. Judas is another one. Satan thinks he gets away with this wonderful thing by killing Jesus. Turns out that's really the main idea that was going on from the beginning like Pharaoh's big backfire and like everything Satan does, all things work together for the good of those who love God. All things. Now, there's a bit of humor in this story about these midwives. You know, they say this thing that's almost kind of funny. Now, this is in the midst of murdering babies. And God hasn't broken a sweat yet. Because all things, he can use all things to work together to do what he wants to do. Jacob was worried about moving the family to Egypt, and that was a reasonable concern because they'd been promised the land and all of that. And here's what God says. He says to Jacob, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will also bring you up again and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Okay, so basically what he's saying here is, look, don't be afraid of this because there's nothing too big for me. I'm going to bring you down to a really wild spot. I'm going to make you really big. I'm going to bring you back up again. No problem. That's a promise. And so Joseph 
Joseph chose to believe God and he moved the family to dangerous territory. That's a risk. But if God makes a promise, you go with it. (laughs) And this new Pharaoh who had never heard of Joseph before isn't going to ruin the promise. Okay, there's more than just Genesis in the Bible. There was more to go. And this Pharaoh, this nameless who knows who, that lived within a range of about two or three hundred years and people still can't figure out which Pharaoh he was, who knows who isn't going to ruin this. Who knows who, the most powerful man on earth, who knows who isn't going to ruin what God promised to do. Moreover, God is actually using the suffering to do what he wants to do. And that's important to note. It isn't like God says, whoa, it's starting to get a little hot here. We got to get out as quick as we can. No, God turns up the heat. He hardens Pharaoh's heart later. God turns up the heat in order to say, this is not too hard for me. And I'm going to look back at this for eternity and say, boom, look what I did. Listen to this in Psalm 105. This is going to, well, okay, just listen to this in Psalm 105. This is kind of one of those psalms where they review all the great things God has done. Verses 23 to 26. Then Israel came to Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. And the Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. He, God, turned their hearts to hate his people to deal craftily with his servants. Then he sent Moses, and the story goes on. Did you catch that? He turned their hearts to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. Look, not only is God able to free his people from a tough spot, but even great evil backfires when God is able to turn it around into blessing his people. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, the more they spread abroad. Exodus one twenty. so God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. So here's my question. Can you trust God with the evil in your life? Can you trust God with the evil in your past? Can you trust God with the evil now? Can you trust God with the evil in your life that's coming and you haven't seen yet? Can you trust God with that? Can you, wait for the, can you wait for God in the middle of trauma? There are, there are babies being murdered in this chapter. This is not child's play. I mean, this is how we destroy scripture is just like we boil it all down to just felt boards and silly songs. This is an epic tale. It's the greatest adventure that's ever happened. And there's babies being murdered here. But look, God plus two beautiful women equals blessing. Is it possible that God has a plan that is much messier and much more interesting and massively more redemptive than the little prayers that we pray? Dan McCartney, Old Testament prof, said this, You know, why didn't God protect them from all of this suffering and so on? He answers the question this way. If he had done so, would the Israelites have ever desired to leave Egypt? It was hard enough to get them to leave even when they were suffering. (laughs) Spurgeon, if you ever don't know, you need a quote for your sermon and you don't know what to do, go to Spurgeon. So Spurgeon 
He said this, in order to cut loose the bonds that bound them to Egypt, the sharp knife of affliction must be used. And Pharaoh, though he knew it not, was God's instrument in weaning them from the Egyptian world and helping them as his church to take up their separate place in the wilderness and receive the portion which God had appointed for them. Let this first chapter of Exodus remind you of theology, the knowledge of God, the real God actual truth about God. Get caught up into this story in the next few chapters, the next few months as we watch God make a people for himself because that's what God does. Making people for himself so that Paul, who went through all kinds of terrible stuff, he says in Philippians 3.8, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now, what is God working toward? What does God want? God wants to bring a people, ordinary people like you and me. He wants to bring us out so that we will worship him. And the way that he does that is intended to bring glory to himself, which means there's probably going to be enemies and betrayal and all kinds of terrible things involved because it's a, it's, a, it's a massive story. God wants to glorify himself in your life in the way that he brings you out so that you will worship him. You want to get caught up in a story like that? Jeremiah 32.20, Jeremiah said, you have shown signs and wonders in the land of Egypt and to this day in Israel and among all mankind and have made a name for yourself as at this day. So, What might God do in your life and in my life to make a name for himself? You willing to say, all right, I'll get on this bus. You do whatever you want in my life so long as you get lots of glory. I don't care how it happens. You do what you want. But my goal here is to become a better worshiper like so that I can worship you in spirit and in truth, not that dorky stuff that I offer, but I mean like real worship and you get lots of glory in how the story goes later on. And I'm an old person or up in heaven. I'll be like, you'll never believe what Jesus did. Let me close with this, Psalm 71. Oh God, be not far from me. Oh my God, make haste to help me. May my accusers be put to shame and consumed with scorn and disgrace. May they be covered who seek my hurt. But... I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day, for their number is past my knowledge. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, I pray that as we open this amazing book, Throughout the next few months, I pray that you would reveal yourself to us. Let us see you. Help us to really understand your glory so that we would sing and laugh because of your grace and that we would knee knock because of your holiness. I pray that you would give us awe and joy as we come to know you through this book. God, I pray that you would help us to trust you and help us to not forget 
though hundreds of years and generations may go between the promise and the fulfillment. Help us to wait faithfully for you, our great God and Savior. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.